In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, glory be to Jesus Christ. Beloved fathers, brothers and sisters, since Wednesday now, we have come over and over again, assembling in this church to sing the praises of an early 4th century martyr, St. Pantelemon. The church historians would tell us that we don't know much about him. Now, we have a very developed life of him that comes from various stories that are told about him. It's rather similar to St. Nicholas or St. George. There's no question that there was and is a St. Pantelemon and a St. Nicholas and St. George, but the stories have accumulated over the centuries. Yet one thing is very clear, and it is revealed in the scriptures that we have heard today. St. Paul writes to Timothy, remember that Timothy was like a son to St. Paul, and he tells Timothy that Timothy must accept his share of suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And then he elaborates on that and says that no soldier on duty gets himself tangled up with civilian affairs. But he is there to do the mission that he has been entrusted. And therefore, for Timothy, who shares in St. Paul's apostleship, he is to bear witness faithfully to the truth that is in Christ Jesus. And St. Paul tells him that if he does this, he will attain eternal glory. Eternal glory. That's a very high calling for a creature. Eternal glory is proper to God, yet God makes creatures, namely us, out of nothing and destines them for eternal glory. Eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor has it ever entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him, St. Paul says in another place. So our destiny is eternal glory, but the attaining of that destiny, like St. Timothy, is as a result of us accepting our share of hardship, suffering, for the sake of Christ Jesus. St. Pantelemon certainly did that. We have those stories that in my other talks I have elaborated more about that as a Christian with a pagan father, Christian mother, as a skilled practitioner of medicine, he was given the position of physician to the emperor, personal physician to the emperor, 
Galerius Maximian. And during that time, the last great persecution of the Roman Empire against the church broke out. It's interesting that we, and perhaps it's understandable that we do this, that we pass by in the hymns that are sung to him the detail that the earliest tradition says about him and that during that, when the persecution broke out and it was no longer safe to be a Christian in the imperial court in Nicomedia, in Asia Minor, not too far from where Constantinople would be built later, that Pontelemon drew back from the practice of his faith for a while. We don't mention that. It's, uh, I, I, I don't think that's surprising when we, for example, celebrate the feast of St. Peter and Paul. We don't spend our time on that feast elaborating on St. Peter's denial of our Lord. We don't choose the gospel of St. Peter, Peter's denial for the festal gospel on the Feast of St. Peter. It's not our focus. It wouldn't be in good taste, we might say. Yet, Pontelemon did have that time of not exactly apostasy, but concealing his Christianity. And then when exhorted by the holy priest Hermelaus, who told him to remember the faith of his mother, he returned and then suffered many tortures, we're, called, we're told, and then beheading. So the share of suffering as a soldier of Jesus Christ. In today's gospel, I hope we're all being attentive to it, the word that is used, it's from the end of the 15th chapter of John and the beginning of the 16th, the word that is used most frequently in that gospel reading is hate. It's used at least six times. Jesus says to the disciples, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were in the world, if you were, rather not in the world, if you were of the world, of the world, the world would love what was its own, but because you are not of the world, therefore the world hates you. He who hates me hates my father also, over and over again. So this hatred of the world for the Son of God incarnate and for those who are his, it's not some sort of unpleasant little uh, marginal detail of the faith. If we don't experience ourselves this hatred of the world, we ought to examine ourselves whether our discipleship is to the extent that it needs to be. But what does it mean, the world, when the world hates you? What's meant by the world? Because, especially in the Gospel of John, the word world is used in two very different senses. 
All we would have to do is turn back some pages to chapter 3, and we see something very different said about the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, the verse that is quoted so frequently. Yet, here, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me. Jesus will say to Pilate on the morning of Good Friday, if we translate it, literally from the Greek original. My kingdom is not from this world. Not from this world. He would say to the Jews that were listening to him, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I am not from this world. Now, so on the one hand, we have the world, the creation that God loves so much, then therefore obviously we must conclude that in that sense the world is good because God loves it so much. He creates it as good. Good, 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 says the creation account in Genesis at the end of each day. So the world is good and is not created because God had to do it, but because God wanted to do it, wanted to have the world, and then this mysterious creature that we call the human being that is, in the language of the church hymns, a having a nature that is both lofty and lowly at the funeral of every Christian in this tradition. We sing the hymn of St. John of Damascus. You created me in your own image. From the earth, you made my body and then breathed into me a soul with your own life-giving breath. This strange, I, it's not exactly a precise dogmatic expression, but this strange hybrid nature that we have as human beings, loftiness and lowliness. And God wanted us in this way. And in this way, he came to save what he created for himself by taking that material nature and suffering in it, bearing our infirmities. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our ills, says the scripture. So on the one hand, the creation is good, remains good even when it falls. Uh, when the fall occurs, God doesn't say, well, I created you good, but you're bad now. Good crossed out. Never says that to Adam and Eve. They remain good, and we are good also. But we are obstructed in attaining that destiny for which he has made us, the eternal glory that St. Paul says to Timothy. And we have the example of the great martyr Pantelaimon of bearing one share of sufferings for Christ Jesus' sake, that we might attain eternal glory. And then there's the side of the world that we cannot love. Love not the world or the things in the world, because the world hates you as it hates me. That's 
what has become of that creation by it being made an end in itself. The idolatry that is so deeply rooted in the human heart that replaces God with something that is not God. Idolatry is the first of sins in Scripture, replacing God. That's what Adam and Eve did in the beginning. Satan told them that they could be God without God. They could be God on their own. And of course, that is what human beings have been trying to do in various ways since then, and we try to do it as well. As a result of that, we fall prey to deterioration, disintegration, corruption, sickness, death because we have constructed a false world, an anti-creation, through our idolatries. It is from that that the Lord Jesus has come to save us, and that his saints and his sacraments are the instruments of providing us that salvation. So we in this Little church in western Washington have poured out a torrent of praise to the martyr Pantelemon. Surely that fulfills the words of scripture, the righteous shall be an everlasting remembrance that we sing at communion time on the days of the great martyrs, and we will sing it today. The righteous shall be an everlasting remembrance. He shall not fear evil tidings. He shall not fear bad news. That's what evil tidings are. And so we must ask for that grace, that those words be fulfilled in us. We're going to, once again, celebrate now this sacrament of holy anointing. You know, that sacrament has had a rather unusual history in the church over the many centuries. For many years, and if you're old as I am, I'll be 70 next year, uh, to remember the old days. You will remember whether you are of the, uh, from the Latin tradition initially or from the East, that in those days the sacrament of holy anointing was seen to be almost exclusively a preparation for death. And people even said, oh no, don't call the priest yet. It's not time for that yet. Because once he comes to do that, that means it's it. It's it. And the church, now in the East, there was perhaps not quite such a tight sense of extreme unction, as it was called in the West, unction in extremis, the last. But still, that was the primary understanding of it the sacrament before death. Then, in more recent times, that has been replaced by what the sacrament does show itself to be, and that is the sacrament of healing. But as is always the case, it's best for us not to correct one extreme with another extreme, because there was some truth some truth in that understanding of the holy anointing as a preparation for death. Some truth in it. 
Because is it not so that every day, every sacrament, beginning with our baptism, in which we are immersed into the death of the Lord Jesus, you are planted in the likeness of his death, says St. Paul, is not every sacrament a preparation for death. So let's not, on the one hand, uh, try to, let's not forget that this sacrament, this oil that we have, that is related to, it's not, it's distinct from, but it's related to the oil of chrism in which the grace of the Holy Spirit is poured out upon us and we are adopted into the life of the Trinity by receiving the anointment, the anointing of the anointed one. The anointing which is the Holy Spirit of the anointed one who is Jesus Christ from the anointer who is the Father, says St. Irenaeus. And we receive that anointing that we might be consecrated and set apart as those who are of the new creation. Those who are no longer held, obstructed by the limitations, the corruptions of the old creation. The old creation goes so far and can't go any further. It can't take us across that threshold into eternal glory. That's why, as I mentioned uh, last evening, we must not make healing as we desire it to be an end in itself. It is a means. And, and the Lord gives it and has given it abundantly through his sacraments and through his saints and through the prayers of the church from the time that he was incarnate on earth with us. Yes, the Lord heals. But he heals so that that healing may be an entry into something bigger than this world. Let's not become more preoccupied with healing than we are with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our God, who is our life. Let's be seamless about this. That this sacrament that we receive now, and especially on these days, sanctified by this great martyr who suffered, one has to think also in modern times of someone like the figure of St. Bernadette of Lourdes, you know, she died very young from very painful tuberculosis of the bone. And when they brought her the news in the convent that the great basilica had been built at Lourdes where thousands of people were coming and praying for healing and a number of them were being miraculously healed in, in a way, such a way that, that the documentation of it is unquestionable. And what did Bernadette say? That's not for me. That's not for me. The grotto's not for me. She knew. She knew, and she, she was very humble about it. She says, I was Our Lady's broom. She used me, and then she put me back in the corner. She didn't, she didn't say that bitterly or feeling sorry for herself. She said it because she knew that she was not a complete story in herself any more than our life, the life of each one of us, is a complete story in itself. This holy anointing is to unite us once again to the story, his story. 
the story of him who conquers death and sickness and sin, not with a life in this world that goes on forever and ever, but with the resurrection, the hope of the resurrection, as we say at the end of every profession of the creed, the resurrection of the dead and the life of the age to come that we claim that we have now. You have not ceased in every divine liturgy of St. Chris, John Chrysostom. You have not ceased to do everything for us until you led us to heaven and have granted us your kingdom, which is to come. So we are saying that we have now, by the mercy and love for mankind of our Lord, we have now what is to come. That's what the church is. The church is what you become part of to receive now what is to come. So with that faith and with that determination on our part to be good soldiers of Jesus and to take what we're given, we are to be given wondrous and miraculous healings. Glory to God. Glory to God. Let's pray for them. Also, however, let's, also rem let's remember that, that isn't the end. The end is something which is beyond the limitations of this world. Once again, those who bear the share of suffering as good soldiers of Jesus Christ shall have eternal glory. Eternal glory. May it be so for all of us here and for all God's people through the mercy and love for mankind of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.